Hello, I'm Paddy Delaney, and welcome to Integrated Infrastructure, a podcast dedicated to bringing you news and views from industry leaders involved in the development, design, construction, and management of the many built forms that make up Australia's integrated infrastructure. This is Integrated Infrastructure, episode 20. And this week, I'm talking to Richard Stewart, CEO of Infrastructure Nation. Richard is a rail industry veteran with a background both here in Australia and in the UK. And four years ago, he decided to step away from the corporate environment to set up Infrastructure Nation, specialists in project management, transport advisory, and much more. This week, we talk about Richard's transition from corporate life to starting his own company. We discuss major projects, why so many of them blow out, and in particular the challenges with major rail projects. We talk about project risk, contracting models, and Richard's recent experience on a project in Canada that has some key lessons that we could learn here in Australia. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please like, share, comment, and subscribe. So without any further ado, Here's my conversation with Richard. Richard, um, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Integrated Infrastructure. It's fantastic to have you on today. Thank you for, for joining me. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Paddy. I've been following the podcast, so it's an absolute pleasure to be here today. Well, that's good news. We're, we're glad to hear it. Um, look, as always, let's start off with um, with you. If you could introduce yourself, tell us about um, who you are and about your organisation. Um, that would be fantastic. Sure. Um, so I've been in transport infrastructure, Paddy, now for around 25 years. Uh, prior to that, I had a short stint, a couple of years in the oil and gas sector. Mm-hmm. Um, up until founding the Infrastructure Nation business, my background's really been working for large contractors, first of all um, in the UK uh, for about seven years, and then I so I went across to the client side, uh, worked for Network Rail in the UK. That taught me a lot about, you know, railways, operating networks, the development phase of projects. Um, and then I started to start get involved in in major, you know, real, real major projects around that time. Uh, West Coast Mainline Upgrade uh, was probably the largest, which was, um, you know, a real mega project, 600 and... 45 kilometres, I think, from memory, between Glasgow and London, uh, really about allowing um, tilting trains to operate on, you know, a sort of more high-speed network up to 225 kilometres an hour, which obviously meant that all of the infrastructure had to be upgraded to allow that to happen. So that project ran for about 10 years. Following that, in 2005, I came across to Australia and took up a position with John Holland, um, I had about 11 fantastic years there um, developing some major transport infrastructure schemes, mm-hmm. uh, working on some of those projects and then ultimately overseeing you know, a, a large number of those projects all across Australia, so New Zealand, Southeast Asia. Um, and many of those projects were you know, city changing projects. You know, I think about projects like Perth City Link in in Perth, where you know the Northbridge Entertainment Area and the CBD were um, sort of split apart. So we, you know, took the the main railway there and put it on the ground. Um, mm-hmm. New transport systems like Sydney Metro and Melbourne Metro Tunnel here. Um, so really, you know, all all of that experience gave me great exposure to. You know, numerous private and public sector clients, and sort of a direct, diverse range of of contracts. You know, I've worked across DNCs, alliances, PPP, 
PPPs, managing contractor, EPCM, mm. you, you, you name it, we've been kind of involved in them. So, look, Infrastructure Nation, um, you know, established that business in 2016 after leaving John Holland. Um, I, I, and really it was about trying to leverage that relatively unique experience that I'd had in my career up until that point. Um, so I, I, I'm not quite sure the business is now actually what I and you know the other directors, uh, there's three of us in the business, um, mm. had envisaged for it. You know, We initially set it up as a, a trans, transport advisory project management business, um, but we've now sort of matured into more of a development and delivery partner model. Mm. Um, you know, we, we 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 partner with um, with, with many tier one, tier two, tier three contractors. Um, you know, we we work client side on the private sector side. We offer specialist package services, so um, in the areas of testing and commissioning, um, system integration, construction survey. Um, we have a project management office, um, mm-hmm. and more recently, we've now moved into technology integration as well. Um, so yeah, it's been a it's been a real um, exciting period of my time to, to to sort of establish the infrastructure nation business, and you know, geographically now we're operating you know across most of Australia, um, a little bit in the UK, and re- more recently just moved into North America as well. Yeah, brilliant, fantastic, and um, um, I mean, net- Network Rail is an enormous beast as a, as an organisation, isn't it? Yeah. I'm not even sure it exists anymore. Is it? Is it sort of? Um, uh, I can't remember what it's called now. But um, and then and then John Holland by um, uh, you know it's one of the the, the, the top tier contractors, and there aren't many of those left anymore in terms of the real the true top tier contractors yeah. in in Australia. And all of those organisations have amazing support structures, and you you have a place in them. You had a an, you know an executive role in uh, in in Holland. Um, what on earth possessed you to set up your own company where you had to do it all yourself? And what, you know what was what's it been like? Well, look, I mean, I guess um, you know, let's deal with the what, what possessed me to do it. I mean, I guess it was that natural evolution. You know, there was a lot of change in the market. I think you probably remember around the 2014, 2016 period, you know, late in holdings, mm. um, you know, were ultimately bought over. That drove a lot of change within the group, within the group companies. Um, I had really enjoyed my time, you know, really establishing the John Holland business, particularly the John Holland rail business. Um, and, you know, I decided that it was time to move, time to leave John Holland. And I really didn't want to go back into another similar organisation and, and you know, re-establish those foundations and, you know, looking to probably compete against what I'd already created in John Holland. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I started talking to, um, you know, people within the industry about, you know, what do we think the challenges are in the industry? What do we think the, the industry needs? And, mm-hmm. um, and And really that was both from public and private sector, that the you know, public sector needs more understanding of um, of what contractors need. Um, contractors need to understand more about, um, you know, the project development phase, how they can impact that, um, you know, what the client's needs are. So so really that was what we sort of set out to do, was set up a, a business that could try to try to bridge that gap and, you know, try to, to, to deal with some of those issues. Um, so that, that that was a thought process behind it. Um, in terms of you know what has it been been like? Well, it's certainly not been 
what I expected. I can tell you that. Um, as you said, In what way? Well, look, you, you know, as you said, everybody you know comes out of a large corporate, um, and they really take for granted the support that they've got around them. Um, you know, any good business it, it operates with a team, and you know when you step out and you don't have a team, and you know, all of a sudden you, you still need things. You know, you still need IT. You still you still need all of the backbones that a major corporate has, but you're on your own, and you've got to work out how do I provide these things that um, that maybe I'm not good at. Um, you know, I've got to I've got to learn some of those things. Um, because I don't have the resources, the you know the financial resources around about me to to put those people there. So you've got to innovate. You've got to look at how you can get cost-effective ways of getting the right support to ensure that you're providing a professional service. Um, and you know the two other things, the key things for me has been that I hadn't really thought about was co- corporate CV. Mm-hmm. You know, playing in the world of ma- of major infrastructure projects. You know. Th- they are either going to be government contracts or they're going to be tier one contractors. And, you know, both of those types of organizations expect you to have reference projects, not personally, but corporately. Mm. Um, And, you know, you can't even get through the first round of the, of the evaluation unless you can demonstrate corporate track record. Mm. Um, So that was a real, you know, challenge at the, at the start of the business. Um, and the other one is is balance sheet or lack of balance sheet. Um, you know, when you're actually set, setting out, you know, government in particular are looking for financial records. They're looking for you to be able to demonstrate that you've got the ability to to get to the end of the contracts that that, you, that you're tendering for, you know, mm. so 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 they've been the, they've been the real challenges, Paddy, for sure. Um, thankfully, four years later now, we've got you know very strong balance sheet, very strong corporate track records, um, and a great client base. Um, mm. You know, blue chip client bases. So you know we've overcome those challenges now, but certainly starting out um, very challenging indeed. What what um what have been the nice surprises? Oh look, you know I guess the flexibility. Um, and when I say flexibility, I don't mean. Um, you know, that you get to lie in bed till 10 o'clock and get up and have a coffee before you start every day, you know. Um, I, mean, I mean the flexibility of decision-making mm. and the flexibility that we can provide to our staff. You know, we're not um, we're not getting up every day to to try to drive shareholder outcomes, you know. Um, that was one of the things that I, I felt being in a large corporate became quite monotonous. You know, it was all mm. about the year-end result. It was all about you know, squeezing every last dollar of value um, out of the annual results. Uh, we, we get to take a longer term approach. You know, we don't work on those annual cycles. We can, you know, we can invest for the, the you know, the medium term, the longer term. So that's been, been really refreshing. Um, and that flexibility, we really encourage it in our business. You know, um, our general counsel, for example, um, for reasons... Her husband had taken a job um, with the United Nations in, in Kathmandu, mm. and um, and he was working in Kathmandu, and and she was working here, um, and that, obviously that's challenging. And we've been able to make it possible that she's now up in Kathmandu with her husband, um, you know, still working for the business. And um, you know, technology has allowed us to do that. That was pre-COVID, 
Um, she's up there for two years. Mm. Um, you know, other examples, we've got people in the business who work school hours, um, who, you know, probably wouldn't be able to be in the workforce unless they had that flexibility to be able to work school hours. Um, so that's been great. Building a culture, like-minded people, very, very diverse range of clients has been an absolute joy to work mm. with. You know, um, we found ourselves working with originators, um, delivery authorities, operators, contractors, even lawyers. Um, so th- th- that's been a real surprise. And it's great to get that different perspective. And the openness of clients has been a real delight as well. I think when you're working in one particular area of the sector or you're working for one particular um, contractor, you do get a very limited bandwidth of perspective because there's only so much that people are prepared to share with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but now um, we get a much broader perspective, which is fantastic. Yeah, brilliant. That's really good. Uh, so, so, so much of that appeals to me as a business owner myself and um, those things about setting up a business. And then um, you, you're quite right, it's the, the flexibility to make a decision. And often it's, a flex, it's, it's the flexibility to work harder, but just to you sort of um, at your own pace. Um, even though you're working harder and longer, um, you actually manage to fit it into your life much better because you've got, you know, no one's, there's no expectation of when you turn up and when you, when, when you go home or, um, but uh, that's fantastic. Um, um, there have been um, some um, massive blowouts on projects, um, um, not just in Australia um, um, and in rail and, and other projects, um, um, but, um, but, but let's talk specifically about rail. Um, massive blowouts on, on, on major projects and we often talk about the the dollar value of, of the project and don't necessarily um think about the um you know the the, the complexities of projects but you know of the issues behind those blowouts um yeah. and i know i know it's something that you you're sort of um um you know well versed on it would be great to sort of get your your thoughts around that uh, you know the complexities of these major projects and why, why they tend to go wrong yeah look well I mean, I try not regurgitate some of the stuff that um, you've covered in some of your re- recent podcasts. You know, mm. think, you know, especially the, the more recent one with with John Davis. I think that mm. some of those mega project risks have already been well articulated. But you know, when you think about rail, um, what's different about rail, or you know, what really um, accentuates the, some of those issues with the mega projects? You know, rail obviously is a um, a sector that has all of those risks. It's you know linear over vast geographic areas, um, as are roads. However, you know I, I think rail tends to be you know heavily heavily urbanised. It's really all about passenger rail. Is generally about taking people from one highly populated area to another highly populated precinct mm. um, and that in its very nature means that it's intrinsically very brown field um, you know you're taking a new railway to an existing railway you get interchange stations those stations need to be continued to operate um, which means you've got a lot of people about it means you've got you know a very brown field environment uh, often got many complexities around access, um, business neighbours, residential na- neighbours. Um, so, 
you know, I think that really adds to the, to the complexity of, of, of real projects. Um, so getting into the nitty gritty of the of, of the projects themselves, um, good railway projects have got well articulated concepts of operation, Paddy. You've really got to understand how you want to operate the network and you know what it's there to do. Um, and quite often we see projects actually come to market that haven't got concept of operations in place or they're poorly defined or you know they've been they've been defined on the run and almost backfitted to suit the solution. Mm. Uh, and I think that comes about as a result of you know political cycles, um, politicians announcing projects that you know maybe aren't quite as well defined as they should be, and then compressing the timescales of bringing bringing them to market. Mm. Um, also, you know the selection of the of the contract type. I think John speak, spoke a little bit about that. Mm. Um, there's a real lack of understanding about the complexities of all the interdependencies and the integrations of a rail system as a whole. You know, the, the, the trains interface with the infrastructure, the infrastructure interfaces with the um, with the people, um, the intermodal points, etc. And all of that means that you need to have flexibility in your contractual arrangements. Mm-hmm. So, so quite often, if I take an example, we'll have a very complicated, complex brownfield railway that gets cut into numerous packages, one of which may be a PPP because of the funding um, constraints around the project. <clears throat> and you know that's the reason why it's selected as a PPP. But in reality, then, that PPP is a very rigid structure. Mm. And these brownfield projects get defined things like um, the requirements of the train and yet the train contract might not be let until after the station contract and the Mm -hmm. the tunnel contract has been let so ventilation requirements etc are not known at the time of letting the contract Um, so we need to have flexibility in the contracts and you know collaborative contracts in my view are the best fit for these brownfield projects Um, and then System integration. We have a, you know, we get a lot of talk about system integration. I think it's poorly understood what we actually mean by that, and and really it is around the fact that an entire rail system has to be able to operate, communicate, um, you know, as one system. Mm-hmm. And you know, if I can use one example of that, Barry, it would be if you think about um, what it requires for a train to stop at the same exact spot every mm-hmm. single time it stops at a station with platform screen doors. You know, this the things that can impact that, the gradients of the of, of the track, the number of people on the train, so the, the loading on the train, mm-hmm. um, you know, the height of the pantograph, the um the braking distances, it, you know, every single station has got different requirements to get the train to stop at that point. And that has mm-hmm. to be into the control systems, it has to be built into the trains, it has to be built into the civil, the civil infrastructure. So, um, multiple packages that all have to interface during the design and construction phase, um, you know, really adds to the complexity. I think. Yeah, at the um, the I think at the AFR infrastructure summit, I wasn't there, but um, I 
spoken to people that were there and there was talk from the sort of institutional investors that um, um, they could see a pathway for um, for PPPs with a more collaborative contract type and a, a, a different risk allocation. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, as we, we sort of talked a little bit before the podcast is that, that there aren't many options for institutional investors in infrastructure at the moment, um, but rail still seems to be one that they that they think there might be opportunities. Um, it, it, is that really possible to have a have a, a, a you know a PPP and a collaborative contract? Um, well, I think yes, absolutely. You know, if um, if that is the intent, then I'm sure that you know the originators in particular will be able to develop a model that that, that can reflect that. Um, I think it's really all about, well, you have to be able to, I guess, wrap a bit of a bow around the institutional um, debt and equity providers so that they understand uh, the, the risk of the project and, and mm. change, and change obviously, um, is, is something that um, would scale those investors. So I think by taking the scope that you can, you know, more or less wrap around a, a, a greenfield environment um, and having some kind of modification event, change event process that's well articulated so that people understand how change will be dealt with, mm-hmm. uh, that, that maybe sits outside of the of the fixed component of the, of the PPP would enable that. Um, but there will always be aspects of a brownfield rail project that I think are better suited to a, a collaborative style contract. Um, mm-hmm. because, you know, they're influenced beyond the point of award by various stakeholders and by the operators themselves and by the rolling stock providers, etc. So particularly in those rail systems projects, um, you know, we, we definitely have to have a, a component of flexibility. Yeah, I mean, uh, Sydney Light Rail would be a great example where um, um, having that degree of flexibility and collaboration, certainly with all the services and what have you, would have would have improved the um, the, the the delivery and the um, sort of contractual issues they had at the end of the day, wouldn't it? Yeah, no, look, absolutely. I mean, I think um, you know when we talk about those risk areas, it tends to be you know around the, the sort of early works, the utilities. Mm. those are those unknown quantities um geotech example so yeah you know if you can get in there early and deal with those issues then it makes it very very much easier for you to then um you know have a ppp style of of contract with those risks have already been dealt with up front yeah, fantastic. Um, we, we've um, we've fallen into that talking about the risk allocation sort of stuff, or, or, um, which is uh, which is great because I think that's where I'm sort of keen to take, take the conversation next. And as you said, not necessarily regurgitate some of the stuff that we talked about with John and um, and uh, and other people on the podcast. But um, risk allocation is such a hot topic for the industry and um, um, in, in everything that, that that we do at the moment. It's um, it's, it's it's front and center. Um, not talking about Australia, but you've been overseas recently, haven't you? And it's sort of—it's fantastic that obviously you've taken the, the, your company overseas as well. But um, you've been in Canada and seen some different um, contracting models. Um, what, what can you tell us about that? And you know, what, what can we learn here um, that might be might be helpful as as you know as we push on with our infrastructure agenda? Yeah, look, I mean, 
And first of all, I should probably clarify that obviously with COVID, we've not physically been overseas, but yes. we, have been, <laughs> we have been virtually overseas. Um, and, you know, that in itself has been has been one of the huge positives out of, you know, the pandemic. I think that um, industry has really um, realised that technology can be used very effectively. Mm. Um, and, you know, we're seeing that right across the industry now, uh, which is fantastic. And I think it will lead to to some really innovative ways of dealing with some of these risks. You know, we can tap in now more to an international network. Um, we've all, you know, more recently we've, all, we've always had those technologies, but people have been reluctant to use them. They've, um, you know, but now the people who were reluctant to use them have had to use them. And I think that's going to be a huge positive sort of going forward. But, mm. um, you know, in terms of risk allocation, and I know, you know, many people have got strong views about this. Um, and if you look at the Australian constructors um, sort of framework, I think there's a lot of sense in that framework. And I think organisations such as the Australian Constructors Association can add a lot of value. Um, but what we've got to be careful of is that we don't end up with a group think approach coming out of these types of associations, you know, because if we've mm-hmm. got, um, you know, all the tier one contractors pulling their their knowledge and their clients as well, who, who are also involved in, in some of the task forces, then, you know, we can, um, we can get some great outcomes out of that, but we need to be careful that we don't fall into that risk of groupthink. Um, and to me, it, it's really all about having a more mature approach to risk allocation. Mm. Uh, you know, being a contractor by default, you know, it's a definition of being a contractor is, is a risk manager. You know, that's why people outsource projects is to have, mm. their, have their risk managed. And I think that the industry, the contractor side of the industry has got to, you know, do its utmost to manage the risks that it is best placed to manage. Um, but at the same time, there are risks that quite clearly um, contractors, you know, cannot manage um and you know they're well documented it's the you know it's those risks that we just mentioned around early works you know location mm. utilities, contamination um i guess interfaces and integration that a client decides to sort of break a project up into a number of projects um so we need to be really much more mature about the allocation of risk and i think we've actually gone backwards in this area because when i you know, first came to Australia in 2005, um, you know, the Victorian Alliance framework at the time was actually very mature in the, in the allocation of risk and every project would be set up with a risk allocation workshop. Um, you know, we'd debate whether it was more appropriate for a risk to be contractor owned or client owned or shared. Um, and we document that as part of the Alliance deed that that kind of discipline doesn't seem to be in the in the marketplace in Australia now, and um, you know we have fallen into, um, I guess a a legal commercial led process that is very much about um, offsetting that risk and giving it to somebody else rather than looking at who should own it. And it was refreshing the period that I've just had in Canada to see that. The project that I was involved in was taking that exact approach, Paddy. Mm. The, the risk allocation 
was very, very clear from the outset. Um, big difference, geotech reports, not just geotech reports, but all documentation provided by the client is to be relied upon, mm. which is similar to the European model. Here in Australia, that information is provided, but it's not to be relied upon. So if it's not to be relied upon, then, you know, contractors during the bid phase have got to go out and, you know, try and verify as much of that as they can themselves. They're doing it in a in a time-constrained period because often these, these bids are only 16-week processes. Um, and you can't possibly go out there and, you know, do a comprehensive geotech investigation, um, you know, find every utility, Etc. In, in, in a 16 week period. So, mm-hmm. you know, what do they do about that? They add contingency. They have to allocate risk money, um, and quite often that risk allocation is actually a double up on what you know the client may have already allowed. Um, so, you know, we get ourselves into this situation where contractors are either loading up risk, or as we've seen recently, are walk, walking away from contracts because the risk is too large. They can't. They just can't mm-hmm. take the risk because it's going to be, you know, it has the potential to, to, to bankrupt the business. Um, you know, and private sector organisations are, are not in a position to take un, un, unlimited risk. So that's been dealt with in Canada in a very mature way. That the documentation is to be relied upon. The contractors know what they're bidding. They know what they're not bidding. Um, the client is then taking a proactive approach to um, what will happen if that documentation um, is different from the, you know, what is actually uncovered in the ground and the contractor will be entitled to to both time and cost should that eventuate. Um, interface scope is also another item that, um, that the client has taken um, responsibility for. Um, you know, there's mechanisms to ensure that the contractors are defining the scope through the design processes as well as possible. There's interface requirements between the packages, but ultimately, if there is a if there is a scope gap, um, then again, you know, the client will acknowledge that on a best for project basis, that scope will be allocated to one of the one of the contractors. And the appropriate um, money and time will be allocated to deal with it. Um, so, I think there is a lot that can be learned from that approach. Um, when you look at, you know, the framework that we spoke about, it, you know, aims to try to have industry engaged to have those types of outcomes. Um, but you know we're a long way away from actually achieving it here in Australia. I think I was sort of having a look last week at the the New South Wales ten point plan. Mm. Um, you know that ten point plan came out in two thousand and eighteen, um, and when you look at it, I would say that six out of the ten um, commitments that, that that were made have not been achieved mm-hmm. two, two two years later. So it's one thing to identify the issues. It's another thing to actually act upon them and to start to get the sector to behave in that culture that, that we're all aiming to, 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 to try to achieve. 
Mm, no, absolutely. What um, what, what, the ACA are obviously doing doing their work around that. What, what's it going to change to um, um, convince the sort of you know the the, the the state and federal governments to make the changes to um, you know um, you know in, in the way that you're talking about for them to recognise that risk much much earlier on. Oh, look, I mean, look at it. It's very complex. I mean, we, I think we all know the size of you know the authorities um, we've got. You know, state organisations. We've got um, federal organisations. We've also got local councils to deal with, etc. Mm. You know, the thing about railway is they, they they often cut across numerous jurisdictions. You know, if you've got a a sixty five kilometre railway in Sydney, for example, you know that might cut through twenty twenty five council areas. So there's a lot of complexity there. I think there has been an acknowledgement, um, both at state and federal level, that we need to drive for change. But there needs to be a real top-down implementation of, take for example, the New South Wales um, you know, 10-point plan. Mm. It, it needs to be lived and breathed. It can't just be rhetoric that's put up there as an ambition. Um, and I think you know, the advisors that we have in our business now, businesses now, um, or our industry now, Paddy, if I went back 15 years ago, then the type of people advising industry were people who had come from engineering construction backgrounds. Mm-hmm. They had they'd been involved in the delivery of these large, large-scale projects, governments, sort of shared and learned from previous projects and previous states. Um, what, what we're finding now is that a lot of the, advi- the advisory services are coming from um, more of a legal commercial accounting type background and perspective. Mm. Um, you know, the big four are very active in, um, in this area now. And whilst they have, you know, gone to market and brought some of the people I'm talking to, they have a different approach. Um, so I think we've kind of got to get back to basics a little bit and, you know, learn from projects that have gone well mm. as much as we learn from projects that haven't gone well. I think we, we we very much focus on those projects that went wrong and the, the ones that go well, we just, you know, celebrate and move on. Um, so but lucky. Yeah, well, yeah, or well, you know, looking looking at well, why did they go well? And it's generally mm. about it's generally about people and and teams and experience mm. and collaboration and um, you know most projects reach a point in time where they only get over the line because people just get to a point where they realise they've got to get in and roll roll their sleeves up and collaborate. Um, you know, we've seen that on Northwest Metro, for example, great collaboration. Mm. Um, you know, between the owners. Authorities, the operators, the contractors, etc. Um, you know, to get a common goal achieved. So, it is definitely some kind of independent task force type arrangement. I think where we've got representation from, you know, all areas of industry, um, taking ownership. Um, I guess again, the risk of it coming from an organisation that only has contractors in it or only has client organisations in it is that one. It can be, um, you know, biased towards that side of the industry, and it might not be adopted and lived by 
the other side of the industry, which is where we needed to be driven from in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and um, it's it's not to like get things, you know, these, these issues um, sorted out and, and from that top-down approach that something like a high-speed rail becomes a reality, is it? Because until until then, it's just such a hot potato that no one's going to want to touch it um, in, in terms of, you know, investing in it or delivering it. Yeah, look, I mean, it, obviously high-speed rail is something that's been, you know, spoken about for a long, long time. And, mm. um, you know, my view of high-speed rail is that it absolutely can work in Australia. But what we've got to do first is understand why we want it. You know, do do we want it to support decentralisation? Do we want people to be able to commute into cities for jobs, but that you know have real livable lifestyles out with those um, centres? Do we want it for you know interstate CBD to CBD travel? My view on that is no, because um, mm. we've already got. <clears throat> Um, you know, a very well-established domestic air network, um, albeit it's under a lot of stress at the moment. But, you know, I think we've really got to understand why we want high-speed rail, what it's there to do, um, and then, you know, have a fully integrated strategy around whatever that is um, to support the railway. Let's not just build a, a high-speed rail from point A to point B and then hope that a use eventuates round about it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, we are a short form podcast, and um, I, I really appreciate your time. And um, 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 uh, it's great to hear about your experiences in terms of setting up the, the company and um, um, the um, you know the, the idea about major projects and the blowouts and, and also about risk allocation. So, th- thank you ever so much for joining us today. Re- really appreciate it. Um, been great, great to have you on. Um, we always finish with a, with the same question um, at the end, and. Um, um, I'm going to throw it throw it to you as as, as normal. But um, what what are you excited about at the moment? What are you looking forward to? Um, I'll, I guess you know, first of all, on a personal level, Paddy, uh, you know, I'm I'm really excited about this sort of rate rate of change of innovation mm. that's been driven out of the you know the pandemic. You know, I think that technology has been way ahead of techn- technology uptake, um, particularly in the construction industry. Um, you know, a colleague of mine who will know who they are often says to me that, um, you know, construction has been the slowest adopter of technology outside of farming and agriculture. Um, and, you know, sadly that's true. But, you know, the one thing that we've had to do in the last, whatever it is now, nine months, is, le- is learn how to pivot, you know, learn how to innovate or die. Um, and, I, you know, I think the next... 12 months, you know, is going to be you know, sort of a renaissance period for the construction industry, Paddy. You know, we've all had mm-hmm. a, a big kick out the backside. Um, you know, we've, we've really learned how to adopt it now, and I'm really looking forward to that continuing over, over the next 12 months. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that next five-year period, I think, will be, will be a really fantastic time, and so it leads me on to the... You know, what I'm excited about from an infrastructure nation point of view, um, and it's really been here at that time to be able to um, support the industry. You know, we're going to get a lot of money pumped into the, the industry. We've got an amazing pipeline ahead of us. Um, and thankfully, I think most governments now are thinking about infrastructure um, in a way that how can it integrate with placemaking, how can it create great places. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm really, really excited about 
um, infrastructure nation's involvement in that over the next five years. Yeah, brilliant. It's um, uh, there's so much to be excited about. I know we've all had a crap 2020, or you yeah. know, it's not been completely crap. But it's for everybody, but it's been it's been disrupted, hasn't it? Um, but the um, the look ahead is certainly really good. Yeah, absolutely, Paddy. I think um, it's great to see everybody acknowledging that there's going to be change and. You know, bringing that in at a time when we've got so much opportunity is um, is, is great for the industry. So um, hopefully we can encourage some people from other sectors into our industry as well. Obviously, mm. some, of those, some of those sectors have been badly, badly hit, you know, during the pandemic. And, you know, that's a great opportunity for us um, for diversification as well and, and bringing people from other people into our sector and retraining them in our sector here in Australia rather than having to, you know, continually um, depend on um, population growth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that, that's something I've been, I've been really keen to see the government do a bit more on that in terms of retraining, but I guess we'll see, um, we'll see what what happens next year once we've got over this initial shock and, um, um, you know, the industry, in, in, all industries start moving a little bit, but um, time will tell. Um, Richard, it's been great to have you on. Thank you very much. Um, um, it's great to have a real, a real strong rail, rail focus um, for a change. We haven't had, uh, haven't that, had that on the podcast yet. So thank you again. Um, all the best with Infrastructure Nation and, um, and great to hear things are going so well. Thanks very much, Paddy, and um, good luck with the podcast going forward. I'll obviously be continuing to listen in and continuing to learn from our industry peers. Thanks for the opportunity. Fantastic. Brilliant. You have a great day. Thanks, now. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Integrated Infrastructure is powered by NorthSearch, specialists in executive and technical search across engineering, design, construction, property and energy markets in Australia. If you'd like to find out more about NorthSearch or get involved with this podcast, you can click on the links in the show notes or email me directly at the address on the screen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Integrated Infrastructure. Please tell your friends and colleagues if you did, and we hope to see you again soon.